0: I heard a few too many of you, amen, when Kurt asked the Lord for me to be a tool. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, good morning, church. How we doing? What a joy to be together today, amen? We are continuing our series in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be digging into that today. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have house Bibles around the room, under the chairs, you can look around and grab one. Uh, we really believe in the importance of access to God's Word and Emmanuel. And so uh, if you're here today and don't own a copy of God's Word physically, we'd love for you to snag one of those, take it home. Um, before we jump into it, so I am supposed to tell you guys something that's, that's kind of silly, but, but, but I think it's cool. Uh, and, and so I'll set it up like this. So, so I got to go uh, earlier this week to uh, the North American Mission Board did uh, a conference Um, on this idea of churches that replant and merge uh, and how to help uh, churches do that. I'm part of a team with our association uh, that helps do free consulting for churches in our area who are struggling. Um, And so they invited me to come to this and I got to tell a little bit of Emmanuel's story and how God worked to draw uh, two churches together to plant a new church in West County. And it was just a really, really cool couple days. Uh, and, And the highlight for me was sitting at a table Uh, uh, at at one of the meals with four or five pastors and and, uh, kind of associational directors from around the country, Um, and just each one of them just praying blessing over our church, over what God is doing in our family. It was such a beautiful thing uh, to have brothers in the faith who heard the testimony of what God is doing in Emmanuel and just wanted to pray God's blessing over that. And I love that because you guys know this because you're here, right? Like, There's nothing intrinsically exceptional about our church. Like we're just brothers and sisters who love Jesus and are coming together to do our best uh, to worship Him and advance the kingdom in our context. And uh, and yet there is something insanely powerful and beautiful about God's church, right? Like it doesn't make us better than other expressions of God's church, but it is it is our church family, and it is a beautiful and unique and wonderful thing. And I just was really blessed by that reminder that us being together, doing the best we know how to do to the glory of God is something that is pleasing to him, is something that is an important, eternal thing. Um, And that's a cool thing, right? Like our church, we're we're chugging along, chugging along together as family, doing the stuff we can do. One little piece of that that I want to share with you guys this morning uh, is that several of our people, Chris and Joanna Busby and several other people, have been working in the background Uh, to relaunch and set up uh, a new church website for our manual i know it only took us a year to get that up and running but that is up and running Uh, if you guys want to look at that it has logos and graphics and tells our church story and all sorts of stuff like that it's a cool resource to point people toward uh, if you're inviting friends or whatever um, to our church so check that out it's kind of a cool thing right joanna designed that logo did they put it up on the screen did you guys see it new one Julian yeah, join the Busby designed that, which is cool. Um, so check that out. If you think about it, we'll, we'll put some stuff on that on Facebook and things like that so you guys can see it. Just a cool thing. So today, we're continuing in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 5. And today, we're going to talk about the law of God. Now, I know as soon as I say that, many of us immediately get a bad taste in our mouth. Right? Like, if you grew up in your faith in an evangelical context, we almost always talk about the law in a negative sense. Right? Like, for many of us, the law is shorthand for empty religious practice, right? Like, God looks through and sees the heart. And I would say, even outside of our faith practice, Pretty much most of us just have personal negative feelings with regards to the law. We can love and support public servants all day long, and I'm sure you all do, but when you get that whoop whoop behind you on Manchester Road, when you're going 10 over, you know what I'm talking about, don't hide right now. There's, there's, that's not a moment where you're hyped and excited to spend a few minutes with a police officer, right? Like your opinion on the law has distinctly shifted in those couple seconds. In fact, depending on your current, uh, oh, I don't know, insurance rates, you may be inclined to hire a lawyer, right? Uh, to fight the law. Uh, that, that's kind of how our hearts get. You know, when I, was, when I was 20 years old, I was interning at this church in St. Charles County Uh, in their student ministry, and I volunteered with the missions pastor as a volunteer chaplain for the city police department. And so one weekend, it was a Friday night, I did a ride along with one of the officers for a full shift overnight, and it was a really gnarly shift, and he just was in the midst of some pretty intense stuff, and so at the end of it, man, I got to encourage this guy with the gospel and pray over him. It was this really beautiful thing. Uh, But then 48 hours later, I slept through my alarm and was late getting to church on Sunday morning and part of my job was to start off the youth Sunday school at like 8.45 a.m. And so I was flying like the wind down the road uh, to get to church on time, and I got pulled over by the police so close to the church that I had to pull into the church parking lot for the cop to come to my window, and so I got to sit in my car getting a ticket, mind you, while the pastor stood at the door to the church and watched me, uh, which was a wonderful moment for my young self, right? But, but here's the piece of that, right? Your opinion on the law can change real quick. <laughs> even, even outside our theological context, most of us have pretty negative associations with the law. Well, my goal today is for each and every one of us to leave this place, maybe not fully there, but at least in the beginnings of having a genuine love and delight in the laws of your God. I know that's a tall order, but I promise you guys, I promise you guys, we can get there. Uh, And and our Lord Jesus is going to guide us there as we look at his words today. Beloved, The law of God is a beautiful gift. I'm going to repeat that phrase a couple times today. The law of God is a beautiful gift. It is a window into the very heart of God himself. And for those who are in Christ, the law points us to holiness and maturity in faith. So we're going to read this, but let me set up our text real quick. Remember, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is early in Jesus' ministry. He's gone off to this mountain outside Capernaum. He's teaching to his disciples, but the crowds are gathered around as well. This, our text today, is a transitional text in the Sermon on the Mount. The opening bits of the sermon connect specifically to kind of who is a part of Jesus' kingdom and what sorts of people are in that kingdom. For the rest of chapter five, Jesus is going to explain his kingdom's relationship to the Jewish faith that came before, right? And and this is, by the way, a really important question for Jesus to answer. I mean, God is doing something new in Jesus. So what about the revealed scriptures and traditions God has already given? the prophet Moses, through Mount Sinai, through the covenants of the patriarchs. Jesus is about to plainly define his kingdom's relationship to the old law before going on, we're going to spend the next several texts in the Sermon on the Mount giving specific interpretations of how his followers interpret and obey the law of God. So why is it so important for Jesus to define his relationship with the law? Well, as we're going to see over the course of Matthew, one of the main criticisms leveled against Jesus by the religious leaders of his day was observance to the law. Jesus seemed to play pretty fast and loose with what we would call the Old Testament commandments in the way that the religious leaders of his day understood them. You combine this with the fact that he's teaching about this new kingdom of God, that God is doing something new. It made a lot of sense that folk wanted to know exactly where Jesus stands with regards to the scripture as they understood it, right? We're talking about people who loved God and loved his word. And this new guy's coming along with all these new ideas, and they're going, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, because God's revealed himself to us. So how does this work? So let's jump into this text and see what we can see. We're in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. It says this. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Jesus, we pray this morning as we take a few minutes to pick at this text to consider it, God, I just pray that you would give us humble, fresh, clear eyes to hear from you, God. I just know, Lord, that many of us are sitting in a faith tradition and a history of our faith or these are just some difficult words from Jesus to process, to understand. God, I pray that you would give us a humility and openness to hear from you. And Lord, above all, God, I just pray that you would actually Birth in us a delight, a delight in your holiness, a delight in your your movement of us in sanctification that we would desire to actually be more like you, to be sanctified, to grow in holiness, that we would see your law as a gift to us to help us move toward the design you actually built us for. God, we love you, we trust you, we need you for these things. So we pray them in your name, Jesus. Amen. So here's what I think is so interesting about this text. On the one level, I don't think Jesus could be much clearer than he actually is, right? He's He's pretty blunt here, he's all for the law. Every detail of it matters and is important. Jesus isn't denying the law, he's doubling down on the importance of the law for his followers and for his kingdom. In fact, as we're gonna see over the course of this text today, and really in our time in Matthew, For those who are in Christ, I'll say it again, the law is an amazing gift, points us toward holiness. I think the problem with this text isn't Jesus' teaching or how clear or hard to understand it is. I think the problem is just us as modern evangelical readers, right? This is a hard one for us. I already said this, but most of us have spent our life in faith being taught to reject law. We live in the grace of Jesus, right? We're part of a faith tradition that's really concerned with rejecting legalism and empty religious practice. And the term law in our faith tradition is a shorthand for those things. Empty, meaningless, heartless religious practice. Oftentimes, we use the term law to just mean that. We, we, we think of texts like James 2.10, whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking the whole law. A Romans 7, 9 and 10, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in my death. The law becomes primarily just, that's for non-believers and it's a way for us to consider our own sin and our need for Jesus. I mean, honestly, right, like as we read through this text, how many of you just had an initial gut, like just, mm, I don't like this one. <laughs> I don't know what's meant by this. How many of us were looking for a way like already as we were reading it for this text to just not mean what it very plainly means? Have you ever had that moment, right, where you're reading the Bible and like already you're like, mm, this reads pretty plainly, but something in your brain's like, I don't know though. Sometimes the pastor, when he's preaching, will be like, oh, this Greek word means this, and it just changes everything. Like, that must be what's going on here. This just must mean the opposite of what it says. Like, you ever have that moment, right? Like, for me studying this text this week, that was one of the first places my heart went was, I'm sure once I get into commentaries, this won't mean what it says. But I really, guys, we have to be careful here not to fall into heresy. I know that's like a intense, heavy term, but, but I'm serious when I say that antinomianism say that one three times fast antinomianism that is a three dollar word for a heresy that oftentimes is just called hyper grace antinomianism teaches that since we're already saved by faith through grace alone apart from any of our works right ephesians 2 then your works don't matter at all doesn't matter how you live how holy you are, how much you strive to live a godly life, all that matters is God's grace to you. Hyper grace. Your actions don't play into it at all. God is so loving, God is so gracious. It does not matter how you live, that's just how great God is. Guys, that's heresy. <laughs> it's heresy. Soundly, universally rejected by the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. It's why it has a $3 word attached to it, Right? We've thought through this one. We've prayed over it. We've discussed it. This is not the gospel. Here's the deal, beloved. And I want to say this. I'm not saying this to be harsh, but I want to say this as clearly as I can to you. If your understanding of the gospel is at odds with the direct and clear words of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, your gospel is not the gospel of Jesus. Period obviously, in our text, we see that God's law is really important to Jesus. Which means it is to be really important to us. Right? So what is is Christ actually getting at here? I mean, surely he's not advocating for works-based righteousness or salvation, right? Follow the law and earn your way into God's good graces. That's obviously completely counter to what Jesus teaches to his life, to his mission, to the whole of the teaching of the New Testament. So what's actually being said here? What does this mean for our faith? Well, I think you have to remember that we are a part of a different historical and theological moment than first century Jews. So the law is an inherently negative phrase for most of us, but it was not so for Jews in the first century. When they thought of the term, the law, the scriptures that they went to in their head were scriptures like Psalm 119 that repeats the refrain over and over and over, your law is my delight, right? For the first century Jew, the law, that term was shorthand for the word of God for God's revelation to his people. For us, it's shorthand for empty religious practice. As a result, even though Jesus' is teaching in our text is really simple, this issue is gonna take a good chunk of our time today. It's gonna to be working through how what Jesus is so simply saying is actually good and true. That's, that's what's gonna take our effort today. Because we're part, we just have a different Default like, assumption about what's being said here. So let's walk back through this text, verse by verse, see what Christ has for us. I really think that God is just going to clarify this to us in a really beautiful and joyful way. Let's walk back through this. So, verse 17 Don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, this phrase isn't just the law, he says the law and the prophets. This is a phrase that, that refers to the whole of what we call the Old Testament. And by the way, it's important to remember, it wasn't an Old Testament for the Jewish people in the first century. It was simply the Testament, right? Like that was the entirety of the scripture. That was God's revealed word to them. The Jews divided the text into three basic categories of law or the Torah, the first five books, the earlier prophets, what we call the wisdom and history books, and the later prophets, what we call uh, the major and minor prophets. The phrase Jesus uses here is a shorthand to refer to all of it. The law and the prophets, the whole of the scripture, all of God's word, So I think this is important, again, because we hear this, and if you're like me, we immediately zone in on things like, we hear law and we zone in on things like Exodus and Leviticus, right? And we think of weird laws about moldy houses and sacrifices and what you're supposed to do with the kidneys when you cut open a pigeon because you were mad at your neighbor, right? And it's it's just so strange and foreign. But when you remember that this is speaking to the whole of the Scripture as they knew it, the whole of the Old Testament of God's word. I want, you to, I, want you, I want to repeat that part because this is important for us. Jesus is speaking to the overarching ethic and philosophy of God's word. Now he's speaking to a group of people that only have one testament, right? But the truth here, the theological truth that Christ is getting at, that's going to hit home for us, speaks to the entirety of this book. God has an overarching message in his word. There is a unified ethic, a unified philosophy to be found in God's revelation because he's a God of order, right? And Christ is speaking to the whole of it. We're gonna come back to that in verse 19. Fulfill is an interesting and specific word that Jesus uses here. And here's why. Notice Jesus didn't say that he came to keep the law, right? He came to fulfill it. I think this means that Jesus ultimately is saying that he is the object to which the law points. He can't simply keep the law when the law itself exists to paint a picture of him and his ministry. The author of Hebrews, I think, says this perfectly in the opening of chapter 10, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshiper's. Are the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. The law is a shadow. It's not the object. I think it's a really helpful image here. A shadow is helpful, but it's not the thing. A shadow can point you to the thing. You can follow the shadow. Oh, there's the thing. But it's not the thing, it's not the reality. The law is the shadow, but Jesus himself is the reality. This means, guys, the whole, the whole of God's word, his Bible, is about Jesus and his work. This is what we mean by this phrase about fulfilling the law rather than keeping the law. Beloved, Jesus is inevitably, does make it invalid. In fact, it does the opposite. If the law is the shadow pointing to Christ as the reality, then the law is both true and good because it's true, it points to Christ, right? It does what it's supposed to do. So Jesus doesn't abolish the law because why would he abolish something that accurately portrays him and points people to him, right? The law is good, it's a beautiful tool to point people to Christ. Verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus here says in no uncertain terms, right? The law isn't going anywhere. Not the smallest detail of God's revelation will go away. Until, did you catch that part? He actually says that twice. He repeats it because he wants you to know something really important about the law. The law will go away. The until there is to point us to the reality that it actually isn't going to be here forever. It's important. Nothing's going to pass away from it until it's no longer needed. When the current order of things pass away, then the fulfilled law will cease. I think the problem arises for us as Christians because we think that moment is right now. Right? Jesus came and his his work was to fulfill the law and so all things are accomplished and the law is no more. That doesn't work though. It doesn't work based on what Jesus is literally saying in this text. I mean, heaven and earth have not passed away, right? That will happen, beloved, when Christ returns and restores all things and recreates a new Creality, a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. In that moment, when eternity is rebuilt perfectly in God's image, like exactly as he designed it, a perfect heaven forever, the law will no longer matter. But we're not there yet. The law, according to Jesus, still has an important role in the kingdom. Someday it won't, but that someday isn't here yet. So that leaves us with the question, what is that role? How is the law helpful for the church today? We can see how it points the non-believer to Christ. It's the shadow of which he is the reality. We can see how God, Christ is saying, this is important. It's not going anywhere until I come back. So what does that mean for us? I mean, let's, like, let's talk about this for a minute, guys. The old covenant, that's a big chunk of this book, right? It's most of it. <laughs> And by the way, if you go and start reading the New Testament, most of it is commentary on the Old Testament. Try reading Hebrews without reading Leviticus. It doesn't make much sense. I know you're like, oh, listen, Leviticus is brutal. When I get to that part of my reading the Bible in a year plan, I just skip. That's fine. Hebrews won't make any sense to you. <laughs> Hebrews is commentary on Leviticus. They go together, right? So what, why does this matter for us? This weird we like okay i'm not supposed to say this without I'm a pastor but let's just be honest for a minute a lot of the old testament stuff's super weird right have you read ezekiel you know what that guy does he like poops on the ground and sets it on fire and bakes bread and says because god told him to like that's that's part of the story in the old and some of you are going no there's no way eh, for real Go and read that chunk. I promise you, dookie bread is part of the book of Ezekiel, right? And that's not the weirdest thing back there. There's laws about what to do if your house gets moldy and you have to get your pastor involved. Listen, I love you guys. I don't want to come inspect any of your house mold. There's people for that, right? It's it's strange when you read the Old Testament. It feels so disconnected, so distant, not just from our practical life, but from our spiritual life. We don't go to temples and slaughter bulls and figure out how to separate their kidneys and their livers and how that's gonna please God. We go to church on Sunday and we sing songs, right? There, if there's blood involved, something has gone wrong, right? It seems very disconnected from our life of faith, our practical life. And yet Jesus is telling here, us here, This stuff is important. So what is the role? What do we do with this as a church today? Verse 19 says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever teaches or whoever does and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the law is so good and it's not going anywhere until Christ returns. I guess that means we should follow it, Right? That seems to be what Jesus is saying. I think this is where most Christians, myself included, miss Jesus in this text. Because he seems to say so plainly, follow the law or you're terrible, right? (laughs) Like follow the law or you're terrible. And I think most of us, when we hear that, we start thinking about all the weird stuff in the Old Testament, what do you do when you have sores on your skin that turn white but the hair stays yellow? What? That's in there, right? What do you do with the string that comes off the kidneys when you sacrifice a bull? I mean, there, there isn't even a tabernacle or a temple anymore. How are we supposed to do those things? How would you find a Levitical priest to bless your moly house if you needed it? And beyond this, Beyond this, we stand in this constant post-Reformation Protestant theological plea. We can't follow the law. We're sinners in need of grace. We need Jesus. We can't follow and complete the law on our own. So how can Jesus possibly be telling us we have to follow the law or we're the least in the kingdom? It just doesn't feel like it adds up, right? So two thoughts here. I think will help us understand verse 19. The first thing to remind ourselves and remember is that the Sermon on the Mount is for believers. You have to remember that piece. Jesus is teaching to his disciples. We talked about this the first week, but we're gonna have to keep coming back to this idea. Jesus isn't talking about obeying the law to gain your salvation. It's not what he's talking about. You can't do that, right? Reformers got that one right. You're only saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. The audience of the Sermon on the Mount are those who are already following Christ. They're those who have already trusted Jesus as their Lord. They've already given themselves over to the work. To those who are in Christ, the law is a beautiful gift to be delighted in. Outside of Christ, remember Romans 7, the law is in fact a burden. Outside of Christ, the law serves to show us how, fall, how far we fall short of God's holy standard of perfection unto salvation. It's still a gift, right? But, but it's a sobering gift. It points us to our need. But once you're saved, once you're in Christ, once you've received that gift, the law does not cease to have a purpose for you. See, Jesus is speaking this text that we're studying to those who have already committed to follow him. In Christ, beloved, hear this, in Christ, the law of God points you to God's holy design for you. In Christ, the law points you to God's design for you, his holy design for you. Secondly, you have to remember, not all laws are created equal. (laughs) Remember how we said Jesus was using this term as a, a general term to refer to kind of the whole of the, what we call the Older Testament? This means that Jesus is referring to the general ethic of the scripture, not specific individual laws. This may seem like I'm splitting hairs, right, or trying to, like, escape a hard point, but this is important. Jesus is not using this term to refer to specifically and perfectly obeying every detail of the law as described in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. That's impossible. He couldn't be doing that. If he was, he wouldn't spend the next several verses giving interpretation of how we're to understand certain laws, where he gives a standard that is often harder than what the original text had in mind. He also couldn't say just a few chapters later that the law could be summed up in two commandments, right? If he's got every single detail in mind. I mean, Galatians 5.14 takes it a step further and says you can sum it up in just one commandment, right? Jesus is referring to the law as the general ethic of the scripture. And beloved, we can actually know what that is. You see, the commands of God as given in the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, not just the Torah, easily fall into three categories. This is true if you're reading the Mount Sinai covenantal laws in the Torah, if you're reading God's commands to his people through the prophets. Anywhere in between, the commands of God fall into three categories in the Older Testament. You see ceremonial laws. These are laws or commands that have to do with purity, have to do with worship. You see governmental laws. These laws are about how the ancient nation of Israel was supposed to govern itself. And you see ethical laws. How God designed his people to live it's vitally important to sort through these differences. Because even though all of the law is fulfilled in Christ, even though all of the scripture points to Jesus, it is only the ethical laws that can be followed by followers of Jesus today. The ceremonial and governmental laws can be studied and they should be, they're helpful, they're shadows that point to Christ. You can learn about the larger theological and ethical principles of the scripture, but they cannot be practically followed and Christ isn't asking you to. See, even in Jesus's day, the governmental laws weren't followed because Israel as a nation didn't exist anymore, right? They were subjects of the Roman Empire. And when Jesus died on the cross, the ceremonial laws ceased to be necessary. And by the way, when the temple was destroyed about 40 years after that, they ceased to be possible to follow. Even if you were dead set on, well, God gave the law, so I'm gonna follow it. I've got a bull to sacrifice, I got bad news for you. Unless you can figure out how to sacrifice that bull with a Levitical priest on an altar in a temple in Jerusalem, you're out of luck. If you do it in your own backyard, you're violating those laws. You're inviting God's wrath on you, right? Like he says that really clearly. Once Israel was gone, once the temple was gone, those two structures for laws became impossible to follow because those laws required that country and that temple to obey. But the ethical laws... And by the way, the ethical structure of the whole thing, it's about how God designed you and designed his world and desires for you to live into that design. That is knowable and accessible to you here and now today. Beloved, that's not about nitpicking some weird thing about moldy houses and skin sores and holiness and temples. That's just about knowing God's heart for you. And that's open and available to you today. So Jesus' whole thing about obeying the law and teaching others, what Jesus is getting at here, church, is giving the ethics and design of God the weight they deserve in your own life and in the life of your fellow believers. This is about followers of Jesus caring about what God says to them about holiness. Can we stop on that idea for a second? What Jesus is asking here is, do you actually care what God says to you about your own personal holiness? This text is about you taking your sanctification seriously. Which, by the way, is the only thing that makes verse 20 make sense. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You may not know this. This is sarcasm. You probably do. But Jesus was actually pretty critical of the majority of the Pharisees and scribes during his ministry, right? So on the surface, it seems strange that he would tell you to emulate them, right? To be more righteous than them. But the reason is connected to what we just said regarding what it actually means for a follower of Christ to follow the law. You see, the Pharisees sought to gain their righteousness by doing the opposite of what we just said. Their whole idea theologically was to follow every detail of the law down to the letter as best they could. I mean, Jesus crit- critiqued them because they went through their spice cabinet and individually tithed each spice, Right? This is the way these guys practiced their faith, but their law following was totally disconnected from their actual hearts. All they thought about, all they cared about in terms of law following, was the actions. This is where we get the image that the law is just a means, just means empty religious practice. It's it's from Jesus' critique of these guys. But Jesus has just pointed out to us the truth that the law is about God's design for you. And in Christ, you're to take this to heart. So you surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, not when you learn how to follow the laws better than them, because hear this, you won't. They're really good at it. You'll you'll, you'll surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees when you seek your righteousness in a different and better way. When you allow the indwelling Holy Spirit who all who are in Christ have to actually drive you to greater holiness as you dive deeper into God's heart for you. Truly your righteousness will surpass those who are trying to please God with empty behaviors, amen? So what does this mean for us today? How do we land this thing out? The call here, beloved, is one of sanctification and holiness but there's more to it than that. See, Jesus isn't just telling you to get your act together. (laughs) Although I think for some of us in the room, we probably need that little bit of a kick in the butt to go, whoa, I actually fall into antinomianism, my $3 heretical word of the day, way more than I'm willing to admit. And the idea that God actually has a holy, righteous standard and desires me to genuinely change and grow and live my life in holiness, some of us just need that push today. But he isn't just telling you to get your act together. He's reminding us how lucky, how blessed we are to have God's law. God's law is a gift to God's people. God's revelation, his his, his word is a gift to his people. First and foremost, it points to Jesus. It paints a picture of Christ and his accomplished work on our behalf. I mean, seriously, go back and just read the feasts that Christ appointed in the Old Testament and see how each one of them just beautifully, tangibly, palpably paints a picture of Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. It's insane how clearly something as weird as Jewish holidays point us to the gospel of Jesus. It does that. It's the shadow to his substance. But beyond this, the law of God, hear this, beloved. Don't miss this today. The law of God gives you a window into the very heart of God for you. When we delight in the law, when we pour ourselves into it, we learn God's heart for ourselves and for others. We learn how holy and good God is. When you, when you dive into this word, and you read the law, and you read the history, and you read the wisdom, and you read the prophets, all the weird ones, with all the weird stuff going on, you get a picture of God's heart for you. You learn how holy he is. You learn how good he is. You learn how patient he is. You'll see his mercy, his steadfastness. You'll also see his hatred of sin. You'll see his passion for the outcast, for those in need of help. His love for sinners. His love for those in need. Beloved, truly, the law of God is an amazing gift. It's a gift. So what do we do with this today? Beloved, you will learn to delight in the law of God when you spend time with it. And I'm confident of that because it's that good. (laughs) The more you spend time with the word of God, the more you will delight in it. Guys, just because, hear this, just because Jesus summarizes the ethics of the entire kingdom, the, the, the whole of the law in two sentences, you know, love God and love others, just because he can summarize it does not mean that the actual specific word is a precious and gift and necessary aid for you in your life. Just because Christ can summarize it in two commands doesn't mean that you don't need this in your pursuit of holiness and maturity in the kingdom of God. Imagine for a moment that you're a parent. And imagine for a moment that the task of parenting is difficult. I know. This is a hypothetical though, so so sit sit, sit with me in this. I mean, I for one, I've always found that easy and joyful and life-giving, but I've heard from other people that sometimes it can be a pain. Imagine for the sake of illustration that you're a parent and it's hard and draining and discouraging. And then a friend at church tells you about this amazing gospel-centered parenting book they read, right? It's a complete game changer. It has all these practical examples of how you can help shepherd your kids and, and even shepherd your own heart as you're seeking to parent them. They tell you like how just, man, man, it just really like absolutely changed the way they're engaging their family. And you're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they say, I mean, you know, it basically just comes down to making your parenting about pointing your kid to Jesus. But I'll tell you what, the specific examples and exercises of the author were so helpful for me. How many of you at that point will go, oh. Well, if it's just about, I mean, like loving your kid and pointing to Jesus, I guess I don't need to read the book. Like you just summarize the formula, like, I'm good. Thanks. No, 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 no. No. That's not how that works. If that's how that works, trust me, you're not desperate enough in your parenting. Uh, (laughs) If you're like me, you'll be desperate enough at that point that you want to know all the details, right? That sounds awesome. How does the author do it? How does it work? Tell me all of it. I want to see this book. The summary will drive you to want to dig into the details, right? Beloved, the same is true with the very words of God. The law of God for you can easily be summarized as just love God and love others. I mean, that's what Jesus says. It all lands on that. Love God, love others. But my goodness gracious, don't don't, don't you want the details? Don't you want to see the examples? Don't you want to see how brothers and sisters have worked that out for the last 4,000 years? Digging through this painful, messed up, broken world dealing through loss and suffering and stress and anxiety and figuring out how they can love God and love others, don't you want to see it in action? Don't you want to see all the little bitty details, how it works out in romance and parenting and marriage and young age and old age and everything in between? Because you can. It's right here for you. And if you want to come back up, we're going to close today. The invitation I have for you as we land this out is to just simply consider this. Have you dismissed God's law in your life? I think it's a worthy question. And I'll give kind of two nuances to this. You know, maybe you're in this room and you're still considering if you want salvation. That's a beautiful thing to consider, and I applaud you for considering that. If so, that's where you are, you need to know the law is an amazing resource. The law of God will allow you to see his holiness and will give you a clear picture of sin and how sin has affected you. I'd I'd encourage you. Consider this. But if you're in Christ, I still want you to consider if you've rejected the law of God. I want you to consider how the law might still be a gift to you, even though you've ignored it. Beloved, I'm just going to say this because I love you guys and because I need to hear it today too. I'm just going to say that if you have ignored the law in your life, it's likely because you are ignoring aspects of your own sanctification. God does have an ethical standard. (laughs) He just does. He designed you to live a specific and certain way. But hear this. In Christ, He doesn't just expect you to live into his design for you. He empowers you to live into his design for you. Today you may need to repent of just simply your complacency in your faith. I think many of us have unwittingly, accidentally become antinomians, thinking that because of Jesus and because of our own sinfulness, we just no longer need to pursue righteousness. Christ is good enough, he has saved me, and I can't do it on my own anyway, so why bother? Beloved, today maybe you need to consider the fact that the law actually gives you a beautiful picture into God's amazing heart for you. And that his spirit, which rose Jesus from the dead, which wrote and preserved this word for your behalf, might just come along and empower you to be conformed to what this word says about you. We might need to take a few minutes and just repent, repent, over antinomian heresy our complacency in faith. So I want to invite you guys to just take a few minutes and pray over that. And I would encourage you, even as you sit in this prayer, grab your Bible, open up Psalm 119. You don't need to read the whole thing. You don't have time, it's long. (laughs) Glance over that psalm as you pray. See the heart of the psalmist, his delight in God's gift of the law. Draw that psalm into your prayers. In just a few moments, I'll transition us to a time of communion, but take a few minutes, church, pray to God, connect with him, and then we'll continue on in our time. Mm -hmm.